I'm just going to play a quick clip. This is Paul Manafort, Donald Trump's former campaign chairman, who was recently convicted of several finance crimes as part of Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian interference in the presidential election. Now, this is from back in July of 2016 on CBS. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. Manafort sounds a little like the guy at the bar on the phone with his wife telling her that he's not at the bar. Welcome to Bots and Bouts from Yahoo News. I'm Grant Burningham. I spent a lot of time on this show looking at Russian interference in the last election and why they chose to back Donald Trump. But last week when I was interviewing Representative Denny Heck, who sits on the House Intelligence Committee, something jumped out at me. There's one school of thought that they left a trail of crumbs on purpose in hopes that much would be made of it during the election in the interest of undermining people's confidence in the whole process. Of course, the Obama administration did not rise to that. It made me realize there's more questions after 2016. Where was Obama as our election system came under attack? Today I'm talking to Yahoo's Michael Itzikoff, author of Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump, a book he wrote with Mother Jones's David Korn. Itzikoff looks at the ties members of the Trump campaign had to Russia, but he also examines the other White House and the people who were supposed to stop attacks like this to begin with. What did Obama know? When did he know it? And why didn't he act? I'm very excited to have Michael Itzikoff on the show today. Michael Itzikoff, thanks so much for joining me on Bots and Ballots. Great to be with you. I just finished your book, and it's a hell of a read. I'm going to start with where I think this story starts, which is with this Russian general's paper in 2013. Why don't you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, the Gerasimov Doctrine. This is written by General Vasily Gerasimov, who was the chief of staff for the Russian military. This is a uh, obscure paper that kind of foreshadowed what the Russians were going to do. It talked about the direction warfare was headed. It's not pitched battles between tanks and uh, armored battalions, but very much in the virtual arena with cyber attacks, disinformation, and other methods of information warfare that could destabilize an adversary. It didn't get a lot of attention, but once it was translated by the Voice of America, I believe, people started in the West started to take notice. Of course, they took a lot more notice after what we saw the Russians doing during the 2016 election. So that's sort of prelude to what happened in 2016. We now know because of the Mueller indictment and several other investigations which have been done that the Russians were waging an online battle to undermine Hillary Clinton's campaign. When did Clinton's campaign first know that something was up? And when did President Obama know that something was up? It really sort of came together in the summer of uh, 2016. In mid-June, I think it's June 14th, uh, the Democratic National Committee goes public with the fact that they had been hacked. 
hacked, and they had been hacked by the Russians. They had a forensic security firm, CrowdStrike, that they had brought in a few months earlier after they realized what was happening. Of course, the FBI had been trying to give the DNC warnings about this for months. There were uh, all sorts of botched communications on both sides, so it never got to the top levels of the DNC. By April, the DNC at its highest levels realizes it. They bring in CrowdStrike. CrowdStrike uh, very quickly figures out that this is uh, a computer hacking group, AP28, that they have encountered before, that been linked to Russian military intelligence uh, that had uh, perpetrated uh, other hacks, uh, cyber attacks against the White House, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, also a number of foreign entities. And they go public to the Washington Post on June 14th. There's a front page story that Russians have hacked the DNC and got access to their internal documents, including opposition research uh, material on Donald Trump. So that was the sort of first major public signal that something was amiss and the Russians were behind it. But of course, the evidence sort of grew from there. And uh, it became very quickly clear that the Russians were doing something that we hadn't seen before, which is starting to release the documents, weaponizing it, as it were. By the time that WikiLeaks dumps its huge trove of internal DNC documents on the eve of the Democratic Convention in uh, late July, it's pretty clear that the Russians were launching a pretty sophisticated operation to manipulate the election. And this is something the uh, Clinton campaign very quickly seizes on because, you know, they had been trying to raise questions about Trump's ties to Russia before this, his his efforts to do business uh, there, many connections that people in Trump world seem to have with various players in the Kremlin. Paul Manafort leaping out as first and foremost. Manafort had been the consultant to the pro-Russian political party in Ukraine for years, had been a business partner of Oleg Deripaska, the Russian billionaire aluminum magnate who was uh, very close to Putin. The Clinton campaign decided they were going to try to make this a campaign issue. Uh, Trump's ties to Russia and the Russian efforts to, as the Clinton campaign saw it, help the Trump campaign. There's also this date, October 7th, which I'm going to have you talk about because I feel like it's kind of paved the way for news days under the Trump administration, which is sort of one explosion after another to the point where it's hard to keep your focus on any one event. Why don't you walk me through October 7th? October 7th may have been the wildest day in American politics in anybody's memory. Uh, This was the day that everybody in the Obama White House and administration thought that they were going to drop a bombshell on the election by finally going public with the intelligence community assessment that Russia was behind the cyber attacks 
in an effort to influence our election, and this would have come from the highest levels of the Russian government. And yet, within an hour of its release, it gets completely overshadowed by another news, a piece of news that dropped that day, and that was the release of the Access Hollywood tape, in which Donald Trump is seen saying all sorts of disparaging things that bordered on uh, talk of sexual assault about women. And, of course, that completely overshadows the Russian statement. Cable news is nonstop about the Access Hollywood tape. It's being played over and over again. Suddenly, top Republicans disowning him, saying he has to renounce this. Many are calling for his resignation. So it looks like Trump's uh, prospects in the election are going to be thwarted, not because of Uh, what Obama uh, White House was putting out about the Russians, but by the contents of that Access Hollywood tape. And then what happens within an hour or two of the release of the Access Hollywood tape? Suddenly, WikiLeaks starts dumping the Podesta emails, a whole trove of other emails from inside the Clinton campaign itself that had also been hacked by the Russians and then uh, provided to WikiLeaks. I'm an avid news reader and uh, a news reporter myself. And of that day, there are two events I remember and one that I don't. Just, Just curious if you could guess which one I don't remember. Um, the Russian statement early in the day, earlier in the afternoon. Yeah. It was like an explosion put out a fire. Exactly. And, and look what, you know, has had the most legs. It's that Russian statement. So a lot of the questions after the 2016 election have focused rightfully on the Donald Trump's campaign and what they did or didn't know. I'm deeply curious about the Obama administration and why they didn't act and why they didn't fight back or do more or publicize more. And this is um, something we delve in quite deeply in the book. It turns out that there was a lot of internal wrangling within the White House about what to do about the Russian attack. It was a politically perilous issue for the White House. President Obama did not want to be perceived as interfering in the election himself on behalf of Hillary Clinton. There were concerns that if they did so, it would look like they, the White House, was putting the thumb on the scale of the election and would feed Trump's narrative that the election was going to be rigged. But there were people, and this is probably the most significant revelation on this score in our book, there were people inside the White House who were saying What the Russians are doing is really serious, is really unprecedented, and we need to strike back in real time because otherwise the message is going to be that you can get away with it. Uh, Michael Daniel, a uh, a fellow we um, write about in the book, he was the White House cyber coordinator, and he proposed options for what the U.S. government could do to respond in real time to the Russians. They included denial of service attacks on Russian news sites, shutting down some of the um, online personas like Guccifer 2.0, 
that were distributing these documents, a whole range of other options, including using some of the U.S. government's own intelligence about corruption within Putin's government and dumping that onto the Internet through um, intermediaries to, as one top official put it, give Putin a taste of his own medicine. Um, Daniel had support for these kinds of aggressive uh, responses from uh, the top Russia experts on the National Security Council and uh, also uh, inside the State Department, Victoria Nuland, the Assistant Secretary for European uh, affairs, but uh, the Obama White House decided not to go there. There was concern that this could start a cyber war that could escalate out of control and the Russians could strike back by going after our electric grid. Uh, James Clapper, the director of national intelligence, raised that concern, which in and of itself is pretty frightening. Uh, the idea that the U.S. government's hands were tied because we are so vulnerable to a foreign adversary's cyber attacks is uh, is pretty scary in and of itself. Um, and, uh, at the, and, and as we document in the book, uh, Susan Rice, the national security advisor, calls in Michael Daniel and tells him to stand down and stop work on these aggressive counter-responses that he was trying to develop. The uh, concern expressed was that if it leaked, it would tie the president's hands and uh, or force his hand to do something when he was not yet ready to do so. Instead, uh, the Obama White House at that point came up with an alternative, which is that there was going to be a summit in China in the first week of September, and uh, Obama would take Putin aside and uh, tell him to, quote, cut it out or he'd suffer some unspecified consequences. And as some people in the uh, Obama administration later acknowledged, words were not something that was going to uh, scare or intimidate or uh, cause Putin to back down. Only actions, real actions, would do so. And then we get to this attempted joint statement with Republicans that Mitch McConnell kind of scuttles. That, of course, was another part of it. The Obama folks did not want any public statement they made about what the Russians were doing to look partisan because they were afraid that Trump would would use it for political effect. Uh, and so their idea was, well, if we can get Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan to sign on to a bipartisan statement that might cushion uh, the White House from any attacks made by uh, Trump that uh, Obama was trying to tilt the election in favor of Hillary Clinton. But Mitch McConnell uh, did not want to go along. Um, as he saw it, um, any statement along those lines would only feed the Clinton campaign's narrative. His concern at that point was holding on to power in the Senate. So McConnell unquestionably has to take some responsibility. But at the end of the day, Obama was the president and he's the one who shrunk from action. Even after the election happens and Donald Trump gets elected, uh, President Obama is still president for two months and there's still no action on Russia. You have to remember that everybody thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win the election. So there was this assumption uh, widely held inside the White House that, well, OK, the Clinton folks can deal with this uh, once they take office and they can make these tough decisions about how to respond to the Russians. But of course, 
Things didn't work out that way. And Donald Trump, to everybody's surprise in American politics, won that election. And at that point, um, the Obama folks figured, okay, we've got a couple of months left. We got to do something because this really was an unprecedented intrusion into our electoral system by a, a foreign government. We've got to respond in some way. So then they sort of, you know, get really serious about developing further sanctions and uh, expelling Russian diplomats, many of whom were believed to be spies, shutting down these that were being used by um, by the Russians to collect intelligence um, inside the United States. But of course, Trump and his new team were not on the same page. So you are one of the reporters who met with Christopher Steele of the infamous Steele dossier. I was wondering if you could just tell me. Yes, yes I did. I was wondering if you could tell me what you made of him. <laughs> well, uh, both I and my co-author, David Korn, of Mother Jones separately met with uh, Christopher Steele in the fall of 2016. Um, uh, And we write about this uh, at great length in the book. And um, Steele uh, came with some pretty impressive credentials, a former MI6 spy who'd been in Russia. Steele had provided some very good intelligence to the FBI about uh, Russian corruption within the World Soccer League. It led to prosecution of top people in FIFA. So he was a known source for the FBI. He also had provided uh, useful intelligence to the U.S. State Department uh, regarding uh, Russian interference in Ukraine. So he was kind of a known quantity. And when uh, he was introduced to me by uh, the fellows at Fusion GPS, that was the um, private security firm who, unbeknownst to me, had been hired by the Clinton campaign and who had hired Christopher Steele. Steele seemed to have some very impressive credentials, and I was quite interested to hear what he had to say. And of course, he provided me with the first information about Carter Page, a foreign policy advisor to the to the Trump campaign, who had flown to Moscow in the summer of 2016, and as Steele laid out, uh, had had meetings with some very senior officials close to Putin. And that struck me as quite interesting information, if true. What particularly grabbed me about what Steele had to say was he told me that this had been provided to the FBI. And at that point, I wanted to know what was the FBI doing about this? And I finally was able to nail down that the FBI actually was investigating these claims. And that struck me as uh, newsworthy, the fact that The FBI, in the midst of the presidential campaign, was investigating an advisor to Donald Trump. I did write a story in late September uh, that was the first story to reveal that there was a a U.S. intelligence uh, law enforcement investigation into somebody in the Trump campaign and the Kremlin. What do you make of the Steele dossier now? Well, it is uh, a document that has been much picked over and uh, a lot has been written. I'd have to say, if you look at the totality of what 
Christopher Steele wrote in those memos, uh, which he acknowledges at this point was raw intelligence. In broad strokes, he was clearly on to something. There was indeed a Russian operation to influence our election. There were indeed contacts between various players in Trump world and the Kremlin. The particulars in the uh, Steele dossier, much of them remain uncorroborated and may never be corroborated. Uh, You know, we're just going to have to wait and see what Robert Mueller comes up with. Certainly the most sensational allegation in there about the Kremlin having a compromising tape of Trump, uh, of prostitutes in Trump's hotel room. Uh, We have not seen any uh, public evidence that supports that. And uh, Christopher Steele himself in the book, we quote as uh, saying, uh, telling uh, associates that he actually believes the chances are only 50-50 that such a tape might actually exist. But I come back to what I said before. In broad strokes, he was clearly on to something. So the spy author, John le Carre has suggested, without any information in this, but just based on his knowledge of spycraft, that Christopher Steele was at least partially spun by the Russians and that this might have been a way of them getting this information out in order to warn Trump that they had information or remind him that they had information without making it look like they were being hostile to him. Uh, It's a theory. It's hard for me to figure out what to make of that. There's certainly some surface plausibility. There are a lot of theories about this. There are others who who think that it could have been disinformation uh, planted by the Russians. Uh, There's some recent reporting indicating that Steele, at the very same time he was working for the Clinton campaign through Fusion GPS, uh, was also working for Deripaska, the uh, Putin-connected oligarch who was having the business dispute with Manafort. Um, So was some of this planted by people close to Deripaska for the purpose of embarrassing Paul Manafort because Deripaska and uh, Manafort had had a falling out by that point? That's a theory. Uh, Deripaska, for what it's worth, has publicly denied that. So, you know, I, I do have to say, you know, we we talk a little bit about the sourcing cited by Steele in that dossier, but it's all very vague and murky and makes it pretty much impossible for anybody to make uh, a final conclusion about how solid the sourcing is in there because you don't we have no idea who these sources are, who Steele's collector is, for example. Um, because remember, those subsources cited by Steele are not people he actually spoke to. Uh, they are people who spoke to Steele's unidentified collector. Who was the collector and what was his or her agenda? We just don't know. So if I could take this back to our opening and that essay written by the Russian general, if this really is a new kind of warfare and Russia has fired, let's say, the first shot, is there any signs that America is fighting back on that front? 
Well, I think there's more signs now than there were then, because I think people in the national security community, despite the president's reluctance to say anything critical of Putin, and that Helsinki press conference was so bizarre and uh, so inexplicable. Um, But there are people uh, within the U.S. government who realize Uh, just how high the stakes are, just how serious this issue is, how vulnerable we are to cyber attacks, not just from the Russians, but from other foreign adversaries. So I I think that there's a a growing recognition that uh, this is a far deeper and more serious problem than uh, anybody realized at the time. All right, Mike Isikoff, thank you so much for joining me on Bots and Ballots. Sure, happy to do so. That's it for Bots and Ballots this week. Please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Michael Isikoff. His book, written with David Korn, is called Russian Roulette. Thanks to Lisa Peabody for field recording. And to my producer, Leah Hitchens. I'm Grant Burningham. Thanks for listening.